You're listening to a very special episode of The Bloodsucking Feminist, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Kelly. And this is Rock Your Undead Body. All right. This has been a long time coming, I feel. We've been discussing doing this for a while, and no, it's not Bram Stoker's Dracula. Of course, you can obviously see the clear influences of Bram Stoker's Dracula all over this thing, to the point of almost plagiarism, I feel. Yeah, that's the thing. Bram Stoker's Dracula was one of those game changers. Everything is referencing it now. I mean, it's the modern image of Dracula in our minds. It's either You're either going for like the, the Christopher Lee version way back when, or you're going with Gary Oldman in Bram Stoker's Dracula. You saw it in the Simpsons parody where Mr. Burns had the boob hair. And you can see it here in this... How would you describe it? I was thinking of describing it as a short film about the masculine portrayal of monsters, or the monstrous portrayal of the masculine. I really think of it as an experience. I know, they don't make films like this anymore do they? No, this is very much an example of the excess of the 90s, where they just pumped money into this kind of stuff. We really don't do the budget for it nowadays, especially with the advent of YouTube and streaming, where um, this sort of um, accompanying film is no longer relevant as much to the music industry, unless you are mounting a full uh, expanded album in the style of someone like Ms. Knowles Carter. Yeah, I mean, even Michael Bay directed works like, what was it? I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Had story and power and oomph and just... It's, it's really his magnum opus, I feel. It's truly the perfect exemplification of everything that represents Michael Bay right down to the helicopters at sunset. And it's done so well and without a single racist robot. He's never managed to top it. To be fair, there are no robots in I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. And I'm not sure if robots would actually improve it. I mean, I love a good classic Beauty and the Beast type film or adaptation, but I think robots is going a bit too far. And I mean, I love Pacific Rim. Actually, I would say that the Michael Bay work is a really key inspiration for this piece here. Obviously, the main shadow cast over it is John Landis' work on Thriller. The, the the universal monster influences are here. The vivid colors of Dario Argento, on the the Andrew Lloyd Webber melodramatic camp of his version of Phantom of the Opera is in here as well. It's a complete ode to a variety of sources in a really succinct manner. It's and it's definitely something that has lasted throughout the years. I mean, Joseph Kahn has directed a lot of major pieces, but there's also a lot of ones that have been left behind. I mean, everyone sort of thinks about what were some of the recent ones. Everything by Taylor Swift recently. Some Gwen Stefani, some Kelly Clarkson, some Dido. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a list of people that he's worked with. He even did work with Her Grace Beyonce in a few very early works. But of course, the one most relevant to our interest is his 1997 magnum opus, Backstreet's Back. Honestly, the confusion of the title has left many people perplexed, and I really feel that's where they went wrong. You know, you got to pick one. you got to pick Backstreet's Back, like the album that it's named for, or you go for everybody. Either is a great option. 
Yeah, I mean, think about it. It's like, you know, everybody, and then the Backstreet's back is the last bit of the of the actual movie. It's that final line. Although I do have to question, did they ever go away where they had to come back? I mean, this was from their debut album, right? You really have to miss you for you to come back and for it to make the impact. This is the one from their... Oh, no, this is from their... Um... Oh, it's their second album, my apologies. But still, I mean, you've only had one album out. You really... I would have saved this for a little later in the career, even for the, the millennium era. I know. It's certainly a product of its time, isn't it? You know, big drama, a long introduction to the, before you actually get to the music, weird costumes. I mean, one of them's wearing dungaroos. That floppy haircut. It's 90s in a nutshell. There was, just, their jeans just couldn't be baggy enough, you know? The, the Nick Carter. But here we see a different form of masculinity because our five heroes, for lack of a better term, get to embody five of the most famous universal horror villains of all time. To quote with Wikipedia, Brian as a werewolf, Howie as Dracula, or as he says, a Dracula, Nick as a mummy, AJ as Eric, the Phantom of the Opera, and Kevin as, quote, a two-faced like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, that was very confusing to me. I mean, his version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is is essentially a two-faced character, much in the vein of the DC Comics villain. Half of his face is lizard-like in tone and pattern, which I feel is a really ineffective and far too literal interpretation of the classic character by Robert Louis Stevenson. He's also the only one of the four of the five that doesn't get uh, his own group of sexy, sexy backup dancers, which was completely unfair to him, completely unfair to the character. Uh, well, Werewolf Brian, I don't believe, gets some, but he also gets to be the background dancers in other people's things by backflipping through at least the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde section. So maybe Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's sexy, sexy backup dancer is the Wolfman. I could, I could understand that. Alternate character interpretation? I know, but honestly, any so- sort of diversity, whether it's gender, sexual, racial, would always be... But we're looking for any sort of diversity here, even if we have to sort of squint and take a backflipping werewolf as diversity. Well, you know, the werewolf has always been a metaphor for transformation, for that liminal space between human and beast, and for hiding your secrets, so I certainly could see that interpretation. Although I would argue that this one isn't really more a werewolf, he's more just a really weird-looking pimp. Yeah, why is he wearing a fur coat? So half the costuming in these films are great, and then the werewolf is just a guy in a fur coat with some teeth. I think they sort of had a Repo the Genetic Opera type of situation where they didn't have enough money to really costume everybody, but whoever was the Paris Hilton on the set was like, yeah, borrow my clothes, and one of them just happened to be this big, long, white fur coat. So you're saying that Brian definitely owns that fur coat somewhere? Possibly. I mean, we've seen promotional pictures of them with their pants down, so who knows what their fashion choices are at home. Once again, it was the 90s. It was a very difficult time for fashion. Dungaroos. But it's interesting if you contrast that with Nick as a mummy, not the mummy. That is an important distinction to make. But he's not afraid to get truly ugly. He's got the rotting yellow teeth. He's sort of crumbling at the edges. And then he's the one that they ask, am I sexual? No, you're not sexual. You're a mummy. I mean, just because just because Penny Arcade made a comic about it later to make fun of Twilight and 
the writer of Reawakened decided to take that seriously after everything else doesn't mean that once again I would just like to say the only sexy mummy is Rami Malek hashtag actual Egyptian I think we do need to talk about the fact that once again we have a white man playing an Egyptian character surely by now we could have learned something about it oh who am I kidding gods of Egypt Really, this is just a nasty stereotype that is perpetuated throughout history and throughout pop culture, and we may never see an end to it. I mean, at least the new Universal Monster movie has a... I believe she's Tunisian, which is close enough to Egypt. Same continent sort of thing? That that it is a problem, though I do think that the the material deserved to approach and it doesn't, and that's disappointing. And especially when it's in contrast with some really interesting work going on from the other members, particularly AJ as Eric Phantom of the Opera, who has much better disfiguring makeup here than in the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. What do you mean? Third degree sunburn is not horrifying? I could have given Jared Butler a bit of magic marker drawings on his face and it would have been more horrifying than what they gave him in that film. True. But here AJ is covered. It, it doesn't Even the mask doesn't hide it all. It completely envelops about three quarters of his face. It's pretty fascinating. AJ's character is also the one that gets to have the decadent, Faustian, Vincent Price in a Roger Corman movie style dinner party with all these women. So in this version, Eric is something of a lady killer, which is a fascinating contrast from the whole story of him being so ugly that no woman would ever want to go near him. Ha, lady killer. I know. Well, we see that a lot, you know, the sexualization of the the monstrous character. We've seen it with vampires and we've discussed it a lot with vampires. And of course, we talk about the attractiveness upgrade that for the most part he did get when he was played by Gerard Butler, the whitest Judas we've ever seen on the blood-sucking feminists. Honestly, I'm used to this, you know? He's not attractive here, for that's the point. He's pretty decidedly... Wait, he's not supposed to be a... I, I need to go think about things. See, that's the thing. It doesn't work. He's not supposed. He's supposed to be monstrous and not attractive. Maybe they just like his dinner parties. I mean, if you ignore all the rats across, if you ignore all the rats across the table, it looks pretty good. I mean, it did look pretty good. It's a really fascinating dinner party that's kind of out of time. There's a little bit of Victorian in there. There's a little Edwardian. There's a lot of Vincent Price, Roger Corman era. There's a lot of Mask of the Red Death in here. There's a very specific colour scheme, which is interesting, that doesn't seem to apply to the rest of the castle. I wonder if he had decorating rights over his own domain. It's not really one castle. It's just sort of, you know, apartments, and everyone can um, decorate how they please as long as they match the external excess of the whatever the monster equivalent of an HOA is. Random factoid, this is also the same set as the Casper film from a few years earlier. So a good bit of recycling there. I really think of this as the Hotel Transylvania of its day. Not the Chelsea Quinn Yarbo novels, but the classic Adam Sandler animated film. Speaking of Transylvania, I think we should talk about how he as Dracula, which is so clearly influenced by the Gary Oldman version. He's even got the top hat, and I believe Gary Oldman did a bit of break dancing in the original movie, but I can't cite that reference right now. I, I think it's in one of the deleted scenes for the director's cut. I'd like to point out that this is Josie Moran, as I assume the the stock standard Mina type love interest. Well, we don't know. That's never cited. She could 
He could be Mina, she could be Lucy, she could be one of the brides. He is surrounded by women at some point in this story, and we do get this sort of semi-seduction scene, but he's far more distracted by talking into the camera and just saying, yeah, which is really inconsiderate, I felt. And considering the care that the original Dracula took with all his with his diction and his word choice, having re- reducing him to just saying, yeah, really turns him into one of the common folk, which sort of goes against the whole vampire- vampires as the upper class, the the elite that like to consume the lower classes. But I really feel that that is a subversion of the upper class expectations that we have of these genres. These genres are mostly about the aristocratic or the refined in that way, and they go up against a more sort of sturdy working class hero, you know, the the rogue or the ruffian. And here we really get to see the um, the representation of these creatures as very much men of the streets, uh, the back streets, if you will. Which is why you see breakdancing werewolf, which is why you see the uh, the mummy getting down and wondering if he's sexual. And then that's why you get to see um masquerade scene where they are all shuffling around on the floor. It's really the, the, a coming together of, of cultures. I do want to say that this whole idea of them being, you know, the ruffians, the lower class, is kind of uh, damaged by the the fact that Dracula has both a butler and three maids. You know, that might just be his entourage. Much in the same tradition of the HBO series, where you brought his friends to Hollywood with him to become famous. So, are you suggesting that the Weird Sisters, more commonly known as the Brides of Dracula, had been reduced to nothing but nothing but maidservants? I didn't say it was a good thing, I'm saying it is very much a representation of this particular era and the particular ideas forced upon uh, working class women into these subservient roles. So are we saying that this is Renfield's new career? Uh, the Alfred? Isn't that a massive improvement from just being the mentally ill person exploited in the asylum? Really, we should be commending this piece of material for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that more have not done it. I mean, part of the original Dracula story was that he had no servants originally when he's in his castle meeting Jonathan Harker, and so has to do everything for him. I mean, the mental image of Dracula making Jonathan Harker's bed is a hilarious one, I will give it that. But giving him a, you know, an Alfred and these three three maidservants and a whole other posse, it's a bit like talking about how Batman's a loner and then talking about all the members of the Batman family, you know, how many Robins he's had, Batwoman, Catwoman, various other connections, the Justice League he hangs out with. It it's two different meant to be two different portrayals of the same character. Or rather the same character portrayed in two different ways, and we are meant to accept that. Well, we've always talked about the the um, fluidity of such interpretations and why the material supports that, so I'm not against it. I would have appreciated a little consistency, but I think that that ramshackle charm is part of the, the, the excitement of this material. True, and they are drawing on the Gary Oldman portrayal of uh, Dracula, and, well, we know Gary Oldman can play a bit of a rogue at times. That, I feel that's very much the the major cinematic influence here, one that would be familiar to the audience. Exactly. I'm not sure if it goes too closely or if it's too far away to be... It, it doesn't quite sit just right to be a reference or a parody. But again, this is a short film, so there is only limited uh, content for, for us to really gather characterization from. Perhaps if there was a sequel or it was slightly longer, Perhaps, but once again, even for the 
um, the bloated standards of the uh, the music video of the 1990s. I don't know if they necessarily could have gone longer. There are no helicopters at sunset here. He just wouldn't do that. No meatloaf in general. I think we sort of missed out on discussing this, but I do want to talk about the portrayal of the masculine in uh, especially Nick as the mummy. We we talk about him asking, am I sexual? And it sometimes it almost does come across as a demand. You know, tell me, am I sexy? But there's also an inherent neediness. You know, a man is asking for compliments, which you don't actually see. And not in a, you know, a man desperate to be seen as attractive and positive, wanting confirmation from the perceived teenage girl audience that he is sexual, that he is attractive, that he is worthy of love and being desired. And rather than the assumption that he is. But there is also the the callback of, yeah, so clearly his his needs are being met, but it's not just about the physical, it's about the emotional as well, because it's not just am I sexual, it is am I original, am I the only one, am I everything you need? He wants to be the very best, like no one ever was, in this girl's eyes. There is a bit of an elephant or a werewolf or some other creature of the night in the room here, and I'm surprised we've not really spoken about it yet. It's the complete and utter failure of this film to pass the Bechdel-Wallace test. I mean, it's a pretty simple test. Film, ha- film, book, TV show, what have you, has two women, who are named, who talk to each other about something other than a man. Now, there are plenty of women in this film, but they are all relegated to the background. They're literally background dressing, for the most part. They're there to serve the men. None of them have names. We can't even decide if that's Mina or Lucy or some random chickadee. They they sure as hell don't talk, let alone to each other about something other than a man. They have a cast that's full of so many more women than most other films and TV shows, and yet they squander it. This was clearly directed and written by a man. You know, I'm not going to argue against that, but I do think it is important to note that, one, this is a very short piece of material, and two, this is also very much a, a story of boys, of backstreet boys, and me- we don't really get to see further beyond that. It is very much a symptom of its time. Why is it always about the boys from the streets, not girls who are spicy or whatever? I am just saying that it is very much a symptom of its time. We always talk about viewing this material in the cultural and historical context it was made in. And 1997 may seem like a lifetime ago, but in many ways it was in terms of these attitudes. We really weren't talking about the Bechdel-Wallace test then. We really weren't talking about widening our representation of women beyond these limited roles in the way that the prominent way that we do now. Well, I was 11. How old were you when this was going on? Seven. But I think that's also part of the appeal to the to the young girl viewer, is they'd like to see themselves in the women on screen. Much in the way that Stephanie Meyer really pushed that angle with Twilight. There's always an element in vampire fiction, or even you know, horror fiction in general, that plays into that. And also it is playing in many ways with old horror tropes about the roles that women play in those stories, and they don't tend to be that positive. That is true. I mean, I can totally imagine the targeted uh, teenage and tweenage uh, straight female audience wishing they were Josie Maran being nibbled on by Howie. Oh yeah, if that fanfiction doesn't exist, I will be so surprised. 
You know somebody is out there writing it now. You've said it. Bless you, Real 34. Uh, what else do we need to talk about? Um, we've talked about um, the, 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 the black sidekick being portrayed as Frankenstein's monster. Mm, there, are, there are some problematic elements there. We really don't see what happens to the bus driver played by Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch. He is really immediately suspicious, I would argue. He doesn't seem that bothered that the bus has broken down and he has left this extremely popular and profitable boy band alone in a haunted house. In their dungaroos with a really old cell phone. And then we suddenly see him in a very, you know, the director's thought, wait, didn't we have a black guy in this film? What happened to him? And he suddenly shows up as Frankenstein's monster. With Is he holding the steering wheel? There's a lot of suggestions going on there. Did he become one with the machine? Which I would say is not a very universal monster element and really inconsistent with what we've seen established in the rest of the piece. Um, has someone been meddling with him? Has there been outside intervention? Has the the castle played its part. We really don't know. I'm sure maybe there is an extended version of the story somewhere. Maybe there is fan fiction that can fill us in on that, but I, I have questions. This sounds like a job for the novelization. The sort of stuff is normally explained there. What we'll probably see is that it was that it was sabotage all along that, you know, he, he totally meant for them to arrive at not Whipstaff Manor. And by, by trying to stop them from escape that from escaping the next morning, he's forced to show his hand and that it was all real last night. It was not a dream, as originally indicated. Maybe, maybe, it was a, a, a studio-mandated change after negative responses to the original cut from test audiences. Perhaps. You know, it, it can't just be a dream. It needs to be real. We need to have a shocking twist at the end of every horror movie. That does play into a lot of old horror tropes. And I, I appreciate that more than the it was all a dream element, which is just oh, so tired and cliche. I mean, you're told from about eight or nine years old not to write that into your stories. But who is the audience for this again? Probably eight and nine-year-olds? Well, at least 12 to 13-year-olds. Hmm, true. So maybe this is studio-mandated improvement. The handful of times it actually does work and make it better. Than just let's find a way to put um, Wolverine in this movie as well. It's a really tightly constructed story that doesn't always work, but it sets its aim and it gets there. I feel for all of our criticisms, it's a really it's a really key part of um, vampire and horror cinema of the nineties, and it shouldn't be overlooked in the wider discussion of how this genre has evolved. Exactly, it's an important milestone that, a bit like the Silver Kiss, seems to be forgotten. And I think more people need to really look back and appreciate this this masterpiece of short cinema. We heartily encourage people to do so. I mean, while some of the costume design is lacking, you ha can't deny that whoever it is that is wearing the two sleeves with no front or no back to the shirt, that's an amazing piece of costume design. It's an amazing piece of, uh, of storytelling and cinema that manages to be of its time and of all time. Exactly. You could show it to teenagers of today, and they will be able to tell you who's who, and or at least the what represent what characters being represented here, if not the actors. But that is the thing with a lot of films. You know, you can tell a Dracula film from a mile away, even if you don't know who the actor playing Dracula is. 
say, Van Helsing or Dracula 2000, or... I would suggest to our listeners that they, they give this piece a, another go if they haven't uh, revisited it in a while. There's a lot to parse here, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I will say, I think it personally is a... It's something of a crime that this wasn't even nominated for Video of the Year at the 1998 MTV Video Music Awards. What what did win that year? Ray of Light by Madonna. Really? Yeah. Really? That didn't even have a story! In fairness, Backstreet's Back did win Best Group Video, but really that feels like something of an also-ran prize. I mean, why on earth was Getting Jiggy With It even nominated in Video of the Year? That to me feels like such pandering of the time. I mean, just because he's coming out of, what, what was this, um, Men in Black, Independence Day? We were leading up to the Willennium, so I feel like this was just part of that. Yes. Um, any last words? I mean, let's be honest, NSYNC could never. NSYNC wishes. I think that's really where we should just leave it. And that's that. That's us. I can't. I'm sorry, I have to give <laughs> <laughs> This is really hard. <laughs> <laughs>